The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, good morning. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 4. Continuing on in our study here. Had a first yesterday, first for me anyway for the season. Uh, Hannah has been playing baseball this spring, and so she had baseball pictures yesterday at 10. We had to be there early, do all the paperwork, and you know, you know how that goes, parents. And then she had a game at 11.30, and the coach thought it would be a good idea to practice in between pictures in the game. And so from 9.30 to 1.30 yesterday, we were out in the sun. And I'm not thinking about sunscreen yet at this point. And I'm forgetting that the older I get, the whiter I get, and the less I have covering certain parts of my body. Why are you laughing at that? So, no, really, why are you laughing? Uh, so we're out there, and about two and a half hours into this, I'm like, oh, oh, that's not feeling good. Oh, and a two, another hour and a half goes by, and by the time we get home, I'm like, I need to start wearing hats. This is why bald people wear hats, right? We know this, because... We need to be covered up there for these things. So this morning I got up, and my neck up feels like it's on fire. It doesn't look that bad, but you know how your skin feels when you're, and you're like, i got to put a shirt on. Oh, oh, keep it away from my neck as much as possible. It's not very comfortable. You didn't need to know all that, but I decided to tell you anyway. Look at Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read uh, the whole chapter. Okay, just like we always do as we work through different sections, it helps us set the context, make sure that we become very, very, very familiar with the story as we're working through it. And so we're going to read it for the first time this morning. Look at verse 1. Moses writes, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. 
Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahuyael, and Mahuyael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are excited, nervous to begin a new section this morning. Um, We have enjoyed our time here in Genesis, and I feel like every week when I sit down to study, I just continue seeing new things that I had never seen before, and I'm, I'm sure that's been the experience of others. But Lord, today as we stop and we use this particular time to give us uh, the big picture understanding of what's going on here in chapter 4. I pray, Lord, that you will not let this be a wasted time, that your spirit will be taking even these very high-level truths that we're going to look at today and helping us get an understanding of what this story is really all about. Uh, Lord, we freely admit to you that we are nothing I am nothing. There's nothing about me as a man or this sermon that I have crafted that is of any value or significance today. But your word is incredibly significant. Your word is truth. And we want to understand this truth so that it can change us and make us more like Jesus. And so, Lord, as we pray so often, we pray again this morning that you will take your word and by your spirit work it in each and every heart and mind make us more like Christ. Give us an understanding of ourselves and of this world that only you can give, that only your word can give us. And so we ask for understanding, we ask for wisdom, we ask that you will help me to speak clearly the truth of the scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have read, raise your hand, A Tale of Two Cities? Put your hands up if you have. Okay. Uh, This is one of the little factoids, remember our deal, that if you ever win Jeopardy, who wants to be a millionaire, anything, and you get money, you owe me a little bit. It was actually published over 31 installments from April to November of 1859. It didn't come out as one book right off the bat. It was published in a periodical called uh, All the Year Round. And Dickens was basing the story on two cities, London and Paris, during the time of the French Revolution, showing a number of unflattering similarities, social similarities between life in revolutionary France and London at the time. And the work was immensely popular. It was so popular that since it was published in 1859, it has sold, by estimates, well over 200 million copies, which makes it, I didn't know this until this week, the all-time best-selling novel in any genre in literature. 
You say, oh, wait, I thought the Bible was published more. I said novel. Okay, we're looking at novels here. Best-selling novel of all time. There have been series that have sold more books. There have been other works that when you take them with other things that were done, maybe more. But for a single volume, this is number one. Well, I'd like to introduce us to a slightly different tale of two somethings this morning. This tale that we're going to look at is older. It has been published more times than Dickens' classic, uh, and it is not a fictional story. It's not a novel. It's true. Today we're going to move here into Genesis 4. And Genesis 4 is, to me, very interesting for a number of reasons, but particularly because it begins with one of the most well-known stories in all of Genesis, right? Probably one of the best-known stories in all of the scriptures, and that's the story of Cain and Abel. And everybody knows the story, you're familiar, basically. Even people who don't go to church kind of know the story of Cain and Abel, how Cain killed his brother, etc., etc. But what's interesting is, whether they've been in church, whether not in church, nobody knows the second half of Genesis 4. Nobody even cares, okay? You know the beginning of the chapter, you know the first story, and you don't really know anything else. And therein, we see a great example of one of the primary problems with our knowledge of the Old Testament in general is that too often and for too long we have looked at the Old Testament as simply a a compendium of independent, disjointed stories that have all been put together for us, bound in one nice, nifty volume. And so we're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. And we're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. And we're familiar with the story of Noah. And we're familiar with the story of David and of Abraham and of this thing and of that event, etc., etc., But we don't see how all those stories tie together. And so what I've been trying to do, whether I have succeeded with it or not, is a whole other issue. What I've been trying to do through our study of Genesis is to show us how these stories are connected. That they're not little independent, disjointed stories here and there sprinkled throughout this book. That it's really one story with different scenes that is progressing to communicate more and more truth about who God is, about who Christ is ultimately. That that even Genesis alone is not just one story, but that it's part of God's larger story that would involve all of the Scriptures. That the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation is really just one story that we need to understand if we are really going to understand who God is. And I'll be... Very honest, and I don't say this a lot, maybe I should say it more. I've been so encouraged by so many of you over the past few months because you've come to me at different points and at different times, maybe different messages or whatever, and you say, "I, I had never seen that in the text before. I never understood the connections and the significance of these stories and these these verses that we've been looking at. And you're not commending me when you say that. You're commending the unity and harmony and truthfulness of the Scriptures. Because all a preacher does, if he's doing his job well, he's not inserting his own thoughts. He's not trying to draw attention to himself. He's trying to draw attention to the truth of God's Word. And when people can see it for themselves and their eyes are open to it, It amazes them. And I I commend you for your faithfulness in listening to and thinking through these things. you're, You're getting it. You're seeing the one big story idea that we've been trying to to understand here in Genesis. Well, the story of Cain and Abel, as it's commonly referred to, is, is going to be just another example of this. 
Because most of us, as I said, growing up in church and Sunday school over the years, we've, we've kind of viewed it as its own little independent, standalone story. We, we've been told that it's the story of the first murder. Have you heard that? Okay. It's the story of the first murder. And so because it's a story about murder, it's like we expect you know, all the people from CSI and NCIS and Law and & Order and Bones and Criminal Minds and all those other shows to swoop in, put some yellow tape around the scene, start investigating people, forensics is out there, and we're, and we're going to understand the, the murder, right? Because it's a story about murder. Well, no, of course, that's not what happens in the story, nor is it what should be happening. This is a story about murder, and it does happen to be the first one, but it's not really what the story is all about. To, to, to say that Genesis 4 is a story about murder is to say that it's just a story about one thing. Well, the problem is it's not a story about just one thing. It's a story about two things. In fact, it's a story about two sets of two things. And unless you understand that concept right off the bat, you're not going to get what Genesis 4 is doing and how it fits within the larger context and frame of what we're learning here in this book. And so what I want to do today is what I've done at the beginning of each new section that we've encountered here in the text, okay? I want to take today as just an introduction. Just an overview, okay? We're going to get in the airplane. We're going to fly 10,000 feet above. We're going to see all the big picture stuff first, and then, when we're done with that, starting next week, we'll come back down and look at things in more detail, more closely, to see all the, the stuff that we can't see this morning. And this overview serves two primary purposes for me. I want you to understand why I choose to do this, because I don't want you to think I'm just wasting your time or trying to fill up weeks in the calendar. Number one, what this does is it refreshes our memory about all the things we've seen up to this point. Because I know that you guys, unlike me, have terrific memories, right? You remember everything perfectly, but there's a few of us who don't remember everything perfectly, which, if you've ever asked me a question on Sunday, you know, because you'll be like, hey, Stacy, can we do this, or can you do this? And I'm like, what, well, what do I say? Does anyone remember what I normally say to you? Send me an email. Very good. Don't ask me anything on Sundays. I can't remember anything, okay, today. My mind is occupied. Send me an email, because I have a horrible memory. Well, for the few of you out there who have a horrible memory like me, who don't remember what we learned in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, it's good for us to refresh our minds on those things very quickly so that we can see how this new stuff we're going to learn connects in. Because they're not disjointed stories, it's one big story. Number two, I think it allows us to prepare ourselves for some of the unique themes and truths that we're going to find here in this next part of the story. Because even though it's one big story, every part's a little different. And so we need to understand what those differences are so that we can be aware of them, see them as they come up, and recognize the significance. And so having laid that very basic foundation, let's examine Genesis 4 together this morning. Let's start with the context. Okay? We want to begin by just very quickly, like I said, refreshing our memory about where we've been up to this point. If you haven't been here up to this point, at least you'll have some idea of what we've been doing. And to do this, we need to go all the way back to the beginning with the most basic question of all, who's writing the story? Who? Moses. Say it out loud. Who's writing the story? Moses. Very good. He, uh, you got to think Charlton Heston here. That's a very important to have his face in your mind. This is the guy. He's writing the story. When is he writing it? Where is he at? Well, he's somewhere out in the wilderness, right? They've left Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. They've got 40 years. He's got a little spare time, apparently, so he decides to write down the, the details of, of what God had revealed to him. So that's probably about 3,200, 3,500 years ago. 
How is he writing this? You remember, is he using notebook paper? No, not notebook paper. He's probably writing on animal skins, maybe stone, but probably not. It's a little heavy, not fun to carry around with you in your back pocket. Probably on animal skins. And why is that important? Do you remember? It's because those materials are very hard to come by. They're expensive. It takes a long time to prepare them. And so when Moses gets them, do you think he's going to waste any of his words? Do you think he's going to be just telling little side notes and writing down recipes and things he wants to put on Pinterest or whatever just, just for the fun of it? No. Everything he writes down on paper on his, on his animal skin document is important. He's not going to waste his words. So every detail that he considers to be significant for communicating what he wants to communicate, it's written down. And any detail that is not important for that is left out, even if we would love to know what those details were. That helps us understand why Genesis is crafted the way it is. Okay? It helps us understand the book. And so having laid that foundation, we started looking at the beginning of the book, which is a, the prologue. You know what a prologue is, right? You read books. A prologue is a story before another story. It's the story that the rest of the story is based on. And in this case here, the introductory story that everything else in Genesis is based on is the creation story that goes from 1-1 to chapter 2, verse 3. It's not the main story. If someone asks you what's Genesis all about and you say creation, you look stupid. Okay? Because it's not about creation. That's the prologue. That's the story before the story. The story that gets the rest of the story going. And in that prologue, we learn how God made a perfect world and how he made man in his image to represent him here on this earth. And by the time you finish chapter 2, verse 3, everything's perfect, right? Everything's very, very good. But, but we all know just from our own personal experience that it's not going to stay that way, right? I mean, the Israelites who are hearing this read for the first time, having just come out of several hundred years of slavery and now wandering around in the wilderness, have some concept that the world still isn't perfect. And so the question that Moses needs to answer for them is how did we get from that perfect world that he just described for them in the prologue to the world that they knew at that time, to the world we ourselves know today? What happened? How did they get there? And so, having laid the foundation with the prologue, he begins to tell ten stories that are intended to help Israel understand who they are, who this God is who brought them out of Egypt, and, and, and why the world is like it is. And do you remember how we know those ten stories? This is review for those of you who have been here for a while. Do you remember how we know? Moses gives us a little verbal marker. He wrote something down. In English, we see it as these are the generations of, or this is the account of. But in Hebrew, it's just one word. It's the word toledot. And I, I put together this list. I showed it to you months ago now, it feels like, of the ten toledots of Genesis. These are the ten stories that are intended to explain how we got from the perfect world of Genesis 1 to Israel in the wilderness. How they got here, who this God is, and, and why the world is like it is. And I'll give you a second to look at that to refresh your memories. And as you're looking, I'd ask you a simple question. Do any of those stories or toledotes stand out as being different than the others? One of them is different. And the difference is significant. Can you tell which one it is? It's the first one, right? Because in all the other nine, 
you see that Moses is telling stories about people and about their lines, about their descendants, about what happened to them and the events around their lives. But for the first story, it's not about a person. The first story is the story of the heavens and the earth. He wants to make sure that we begin where we need to begin by understanding what in the world changed. How did we get from prologue, Genesis 1-1, the creation story where everything's very good, to this mess that we live in today? And so he takes this first section, these really first three chapters, to help us understand those things. He explains this first story, uh, Toledot number one, in three scenes. Scene number one goes from Genesis 2-4 to 25, and it's a betwinkle, right? It's, it's, it's taking us back into the story of, of Genesis 1-1 and explaining more about how man was made. And I put our, our paragraph up here behind me from when we were studying that. Do you remember how many times we went over that? That God made human beings, both male and female, with the spiritual capacity, moral responsibility, and communal assistance necessary to serve Him, obey His commandments so they can enjoy abundant life in His creation. That's what chapter 2 is explaining. He wants you to understand who man is. Because in chapter 1, when he covered it real quick, there wasn't a lot of detail given. So he comes back and he fills in the details so that we can understand it better to know that God has made man unique in this world, different than all other creatures. Scene 2 then went from chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 24, the one we just finished. And we broke that up into four parts. Do you remember the four parts? It started with rebellion, where we watch Adam and Eve systematically, completely rebel against every single aspect of how God had made them. They rebelled completely against their spiritual capacity. They rebelled completely against the moral responsibilities they had been given. They rebelled completely against the communal assistance with which they had been provided. Every single thing that we learn in chapter 2, every single detail is destroyed in the first six verses of chapter 3. That's why I called it a, a special little phrase. It was two words. Do you remember the two words I used to define these first six verses? It was cosmic treason. It, it, it's not just merely, oops, I made a mistake. Oops, I ate some fruit I wasn't supposed to eat. It, it's not accidental. It's not a one-off, my bad kind of thing. It is all out treason, rebellion against God here in these first six verses. Next came God's revelation of their sin. One verse, verse 7. Excuse me, the realization of their sin. Verse 7. They realized there, just this one just full comment, that their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. Satan hadn't told them the complete truth. He had only told them a partial truth and they had not gotten what they had expected to receive. Next comes God's revelation of their sin, verses 8 to 13. And here we watch God try to draw the truth out of them. And he does eventually succeed in that, remember? They do eventually tell the truth about what they had done. But we also saw some other things. is that the relationship between God and man had clearly changed already. And the relationship between man and woman had already changed. It was evident right off the bat. And finally, we came to God's pronouncement of retribution and redemption, verses 14 to 24. 
You can't separate the two, right? Because of Adam and Eve's sin, because they wanted to reject God's rule and reign so they could live life under their own rules, God gives them what is right. He, he, he lets them have what is rightly theirs to have. That's retribution. To be rightly paid back. And then, in mix of the, with all that, sprinkled throughout that section is redemption. Where God shows them that He's not done with them. That He still very much loves them. That, that all isn't lost. And now, now we're about to study scene 3 of this first story. It's going to take us through the end of Genesis 4. Okay, you remember all that? Okay, that was 10 minutes. You could have skipped all the rest of the sermons for the past few months and you just got it all right there. But it took me so long to say it all. That's the flow, okay? By the time we're done with these three scenes, we will understand not only what happened to that perfect world, but we will also understand why our world is like it is today. That's what Moses is doing up to this point here in the story. That's the context. Now, what's the content? And, and, and I did this in chapters 2 and 3. I just try to walk through the high-level stuff just so you can see it, so you can know what's coming. I want to do that again today. And I've already given you a hint, right, as to how we're going to approach this. I said to you that Genesis 4 is not just a story about the first murder. It's, it's not just a story about one thing. It's a story about two things. In fact, it's a t- story about two sets of two things. We could call it a tale of twos if we wanted. And these two tales that Moses is about to tell us will complete our understanding of how we got from the perfect world of Genesis 1 to now. Because if you think about it for a moment, when we ended chapter 3 three weeks ago now, we know what the world is going to be like. We saw God's pronouncement of what it was going to be like. But we haven't actually seen it. Right? We just know what's coming We haven't gotten to see it in action yet. And so chapter 4 now shows us what life in this new world of sin actually looks like. And Moses does this with these two tales of two. First, we see the tale of two kinds of people. First story we're going to look at is a tale of two kinds of people here in verses 1 to 16. Now we call it the story of Cain and Abel, which is fine. I'm not against that name. However, I would just simply help you understand that Abel is really the minor character here. He never speaks in the story. We're given just a little bit of information about him. It's really the story of Cain. However, there wouldn't be a story of Cain if Abel wasn't around. So it's fine to call it the story of Cain and Abel. And this first tale is told to us in two parts. Part one is the story of Cain and Abel's offering there in verses 1 through 7. Each of them brings an offering to God, right? Abel brings, or excuse me, Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. He apparently is a farmer, the text tells us. Abel brings an offering of the firstborn of his flock and of his fat portions, of the fat portions there. He is a keeper of sheep. Cain's offering is rejected, and Abel's offering is accepted. And the question that begs for all of us is, why? Why is Cain's offering not acceptable to God? And why was Abel's offering okay? And, and this is, I'm not answering that question today. You've got to come back next Sunday. You like how I do that? You know, there's a teaser for next week. You've got to come back next Sunday. The answer to that question sets the tone for this whole first tale. And if you don't understand the answer to that question correctly, you don't get what this first story about this first murder 
is really all about. And so having laid out the scenario that led up to it, you see part 2 there in verses 8-16 to where Cain actually kills Abel. It's very quick. He kills his brother. Boom. Verse 8. It's done. He's dead. And the whole rest of that section is God engaging Cain in a dialogue that is very, very, very similar to what we just saw in chapter 3. Have you ever noticed how similar those verses there in chapter 4 are to to what we saw at the end of chapter 3? They're very, very similar in content. And the purpose of this first story is to show us the difference in these two people. One wanted to serve God, one didn't. One wanted to please God, which was evidenced by his sacrifice, and one didn't apparently care, which is also evidenced by his sacrifice. And this distinction between these two people shows us two things. Number one, the distinction provides us with the basic categories that every single person who has ever lived will fall into. From Cain and Abel to today to the end of the world, every single person falls into one of these two categories. It's either someone who wants to serve God and please Him or someone who doesn't. It's really very simple. There's no gray areas. Moses provides us with a black and white distinction. Everyone falls into one of these two camps. Number two, the distinction provides us with an illustration of the ongoing conflict between good and evil that's going to characterize humanity for all time. Because what did we learn back in chapter 3, verse 15? There's going to be conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That the forces of good and evil will be fighting continually, striking blows against the other. You get to see that happening already here in chapter 4. And this tale of two kinds of people is just as relevant today as it was when it happened thousands of years ago. Second, you see the tale of two kinds of peoples. Notice the S at the end. Verses 17-26. to Because ultimately here we're not just simply seeing a rejection of God on the individual level, but on the societal level as well. And and, and I hope that that's not a confusing concept to you. I hope you recognize that you are not completely in a silo all by yourself, right? You you are an individual person who makes individual choices, but, but you live in a society. You have a society of your family, whether spouse, children, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, whatever. You have the society, the community of your church or of your workplace or of your friends, your family, your neighbors, of your nation, of whatever. We live in a society, in a people. We are part of a people. We are not simply individuals. And what you see here in these verses is that the choice of Cain ultimately leads to an entire people acting and living in a certain way. And to understand the end of this chapter, to understand the second half of chapter 4, the part that no one ever pays attention to, you really have to consider two things, and I'll introduce them to you this morning. First, notice verse 16. Now, that's the last verse of the first tale. Okay, Remember, Moses writes, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now here's my question to you. What does it mean when Moses writes that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord? Because when we ended chapter 3, God was kicking them out of the garden. Remember that? He, God was separating them from himself. He put the cherubs there and the flaming sword. It's very elaborate. It's overkill about making sure they know there's no return. 
So God has separated them out in chapter 3, and yet apparently we see here now that God had not abandoned humanity. There's still some kind of connection between them of some sort. We don't exactly know what it is or what it looks like. All we know is that in verses 1-16, to you see Cain and Abel bringing offerings to God. You see God talking with Cain there at the end of that first section. And so despite the separation that now exists between God and man, there's, there's still something. God is still involved in some way in their lives. But now here at the end of this first tale, Cain is going away even further. He's, he's walking away from the presence of the Lord going to his own land. And what I'm going to argue when we get to that section of the text is that this represents Cain's decision to live a truly godless life. Away from God completely. With no involvement, no interaction, done. I will live my own life. I will be the master of my own fate. I am going my own way. See you, God. I'm done. Second, keep that in your mind. Second, notice that Moses gives us a genealogy of Cain, beginning in verse 17 all the way through the end of 22. That's weird. Just understand that how Moses writes and argues is very different to us. We don't think in these terms. And so when I see that he begins the second tale telling me about how Cain had children, that's kind of odd to me. But I notice a couple of things here as I look at this. I notice that, first of all, he highlights seven generations in the line of Cain, which is a significant number for him. So from Cain to Enoch, Enoch to Erod, Erod to Mehuyel, Mehuyel to Methushiel, Methushiel to Lamech, and then Lamech to his four kids, Jabal, Jubal, Tubal, Cain, and Nama. You have seven generations listed here. So that means that Moses is stopping our story. He's like, pause, let's see what happens. And he goes years into the future to watch Cain's line. Why? Why does he want us to pause where we were right after the end of, of Abel's murder and look and see what, what, a, what happens to Cain? Well, apparently he wants us to see not just what happens to Cain, but what happens to the people that come from Cain. And notice what he tells us about this people. They're successful at having kids, okay? which is significant. They build cities. They make advancements and farming and music, metalworking. In other words, this people, this society, this civilization, it is accomplished, it is prosperous, and it is devoid of any mention of God whatsoever. Absent. 100% from this description. And you really see this highlighted in Lamech. I won't show it to you at all today. But he focuses on this one guy, Lamech, there in the sixth generation. Lamech takes two wives. It's an interesting detail to add. I assume he adds it to show that this man is making a choice now in opposition to how God had designed things back in creation. And then he goes and he kills a man for wounding him. What kind of wound? We don't know. Physical, emotional, financial, who knows? Significant, not significant, no telling. But you see Lamech come back and basically brag to his wives about this, his prowess at killing this man. And then he invokes Cain, his great, 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 great grandfather. Is that too many greats? You figure it out. That's a homework for tonight, okay? Figure it out. He invokes Cain and his interaction with God, yet never mentioning him, and says, okay, if Cain is going to be avenged sevenfold, seventy-sevenfold for me. I'm that much better. 
And what you see here is that despite the fact that this civilization is advanced and prosperous, it is degenerating into more and more sin and to deeper and deeper rebellion against God. I think that's exactly what Moses wants us to understand about this people. And you're like, is that really what he wants you to understand? Well, yeah, I really think so. And I think that the last two verses are what really drive that home for us. Because if you look at these last two verses, you... you, Something should stand out here because he, he follows the line out to here. Make sure I'm in the right spot. Yeah. He follows the line out to here and he's like, okay, wait, come back. All right, here we're back to the, back to the murder. So after Abel is murdered, Eve has another son. Names him Seth. Seth has a son. Names him Enish. And then notice the last comment of, of chapter 4, of the second tale. Then at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Very different than the last sentence of the first tale when Cain is going away from the presence of the Lord. And what I think we're supposed to see here is that even though one group of people had completely rejected God and were living their lives apart from Him, God still has a people. Just like with the first tale, here in the second tale, We see that the world can be divided into these two peoples. The people of God and and the people of the world. And you think about that. Israel needed to know this in order to have a right view and understanding of of themselves and how they got from that perfect world of Genesis 1 to the world that they lived in there in the wilderness. It helped them understand who they were as a people. Israel followed Yahweh. They were the people of God. Well, all the nations around them did not, had rejected Yahweh. The people of Israel are God's people, and they're living in the midst of many, many nations that had abandoned the knowledge of God in order to live by their own rules. And what Israel is learning here is that this isn't the first time that this has happened. Because God has always had a people. And that's an important comment that you need to make a note of, either in your mind, in your Bible, somewhere, somehow, You need to remember this. God has always had a people that's just a part of his plan. But even then, being a part of the people isn't enough because it still comes back to our personal choices and our own decisions. Are we going to serve God and live our lives to please him or are we not? Because not only are there two kinds of peoples, but there's two kinds of people even in the midst of all of that. Israel needed to understand these things, and guess what? So do we. Because as you look at the New Testament, you see that absolutely nothing has changed in terms of how we understand ourselves and understand the world around us. There are still two kinds of people, and there are still two kinds of peoples. There are individuals who have accepted the gospel, placed their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and therefore want to live for Him and serve Him. And there are people who haven't. The the whole world, every single person falls into one of those two camps. It's not complicated. It's just that simple. And it will be like this for as long as people live on this earth. There will always be two kinds of people. And there will always be two kinds of peoples. Because God still has a people to this day. You know, whether it was the the people of Seth to begin with and the family of Noah coming up next and the man Abraham and Jacob and his 12 sons, the nation of Israel. Today, it's the church. 
Today, we are the people of God. All of those who have been placed into the person of Jesus Christ. Because I'm not using the word church there to refer to any specific church. I'm using it in its biblical theological sense to refer to the people that God is placing together in the person of His Son. Because this people that God is making now isn't bound together through some ethnic identity or cultural identity or or local regional identity or denominational identity. No, 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 no. The identity that we have now as the people of God is based on our identity in Christ. It is just that simple. You're either in Christ and therefore a part of His people or you're not. It's not a complicated idea, and it will be like this for as long as we live on this earth. There will always be two kinds of peoples. And so as we launch then into this tale of twos, I'm reminded of what I had said to you a couple weeks ago, Easter service, about the exclusive nature of the gospel of Christianity. I said to you then that if Jesus really is who he says he is, then we either are with him or we're not, okay? it's not a complicated idea. You're with Him or you're not. You have salvation in Him or you have no hope of salvation at all. But what I want you to understand this morning is that concept of exclusivity is not exclusive to the New Testament. It's part of the Old Testament as well. It's never changed, which should make sense, right? Because if God really is who He says He is, then He's the one and only true God. He's it. All other gods are false. You either love Him or you don't. You either serve Him or you don't. You either come to Him through the way He's opened, through the death of His Son, or you don't. God has not changed at all since Genesis. He never changes. He is always the same. And so I urge you today, and we're done, I urge you today to think about these two questions to prepare your hearts for this study. What kind of person are you? And of which people are you? Because the answers to those questions determine where we stand with God, and that's what we're going to look at here in Genesis 4. Let's pray.